This is Democracy on the Move. Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true principles of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, May 1st, 2022. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. In this podcast, we'll talk with Dr. Annie Andrews. She's an associate professor of pediatrics at the Medical University of South Carolina and a candidate for U.S. Congress. But first, let me ask you a question. Should corporations have the same rights as people? Should money spent on elections equal free speech and drown out the political voices of people who don't have lots of money? Well, the Supreme Court apparently thinks so, but the overwhelming majority of people don't. Join Greg Coleridge, the national co-director of Move to Amend. Move to Amend is a coalition organizing to pass a constitutional amendment to end corporate rule and end the corrupting influence of big money on elections. Find out how to become part of this movement to create a real democracy, not just for we the people, but for all the people. You can find Move to Amend online at movetoamend.org. So we're talking with Dr. Annie Andrews, who is running for South Carolina's 1st Congressional District, which covers a large portion of the eastern side of the state, including what South Carolinians call the Low Country. Dr. Andrews is an associate professor of pediatrics at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. She's been a pediatrician at the university for over 12 years. Dr. Andrews is a gun violence prevention researcher and community advocate working to reduce the frequency of pediatric firearm industries with a focus on secure storage counseling and gun safety education in the community. She's also an active volunteer with Moms Demand Action, which is the largest grassroots gun violence prevention organization in the country. She's a frequent invited speaker at children's hospitals and medical schools across the country on topics related to child health advocacy and gun violence prevention. So, Dr. Andrews, uh, thank you for joining us at Democracy on the Move, and welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Good. So I touched on a few things when introducing you to our audience, and I hope I did it justice. But just to make a long story short, you are a highly educated pediatrician. You are active in gun violence prevention. You have a family. And now you want to make a run for the U.S. Congress. And um, I wish you had a lot more people in Congress with real-world experience like yours But here's the thing, a big question for you. You are very successful at what you do, so (laughs) why would you want to jump into the twisted, dysfunctional mess we call Congress at this point? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. Um, You know, this is something I never planned to do. My whole life, I planned to be a doctor. I knew I was going to be a doctor from a very early age, and that's the goal I work towards. And that's what I am. And I actually do love my career as a pediatrician. But the reason I'm here today running for Congress is really because of my two roles, my two main roles in my life, which are as a pediatrician at a children's hospital and as a mom of three young kids. So working in a children's hospital, you get a up close and personal view of all the things that aren't working very well in society and specifically those things that affect children. And so seeing that day after day over the past 12 years in the children's hospital, 
really made me more aware that there's a lot of problems in our society that need to be fixed and we need more experts at the table who are really there for the right reasons and really wanting to solve problems. Mm -hmm. And then as a mom, you know, when I became a mom 10 years ago, it really shifted my perspective on the goals I had for myself and on what was most important to me. And as a mom, I'm just, you know, incredibly motivated and passionate to do anything I can to fight for a brighter future for my children and for children all over this country. So in particular, then, where do you get your passion for gun violence prevention? I mean, are, are there any like specific incidents that stand out in your mind that motivated you to want to make this transition in your life? Yeah. So, you know, my story in gun violence prevention really starts after the Parkland shooting. So my um, oldest daughter was in kindergarten the year that the shooting in Parkland, Florida took place. And a couple of days after that shooting, I was dropping her off in the kindergarten drop-off line. And for the first time, I noticed the armed police officer patrolling the drop-off line. Now, I think that that gentleman had been there all year, but I had never really looked at him that same way as I did the day after, um, shortly after the Parkland shooting. And I remember that morning watching my oldest child, you know, get out of the car with her bright pink um, unicorn backpack on, walk into the school, mm -hmm. none the wiser, not understanding that, you know, she's growing up in a society where she has to do lockdown drills and where her parents are worried about her safety at school. And so, you know, that day I was just particularly and, you know, personally and selfishly worried about my own children's safety. So I went home and I called my senators and left a voicemail in one of their offices and talked to an aide in the other office. And I got really emotional on the phone with this young man who had answered the phone. Mm. And that was not a, a usual response for me. And, you know, I was saying, you know, he has all this power. He is in a position where he can make our community safer. He can keep our kids safe. And I'm worried about my kids. And I hung up the phone, understanding that my senator certainly didn't have a plan to address school gun violence. And I felt so frustrated and angry in that moment. And I was sort of overcome with emotion. And I recognized that reaction in me meant that I needed to do more. And so after that, I sought out the uh, Moms Demand Action chapter in my community. You know, Moms Demand Action is a nationwide grassroots gun violence prevention organization. And I'm so fortunate that there was a chapter in my community when I had this sort of awakening in my own personal life. So I joined that organization and I very quickly learned that the problem is so much bigger than school gun violence. School yeah. gun violence is just the tip of the iceberg when you talk about gun violence, specifically pediatric firearm injuries. You know, I learned very quickly after joining Moms Demand Action and doing some research on my own and in my role as a pediatrician that this problem is humongous. And we're talking about, you know, pediatric homicides and suicides and unintentional firearm injuries. And so the deeper I dove into it, the more, you know, the bigger I realized the problem was and the more motivated I became to use my position as a mom, a concerned mom, but also as an expert, as a pediatric healthcare expert in my community to really try to fight for common sense gun legislation. So that person that you, you, you say you called your senator's office and, and the, yes. the assistant answered the phone, was he just being like totally unsympathetic toward you or something? 
Yeah. I mean, it was clear, you know, it was clear he was a very young man and, you know, it was clear that the Senator he was working for didn't have a plan to address gun violence. And just like we see time and time again, after these horrific mass shootings, we see the tweets about thoughts and prayers. We see no action. And I knew that that was, you know, the platform position of my Senator, but I felt like he needed to hear from me that day. And it was just to hear him just be so, you know, blase about this topic that in that moment was just so incredibly important to me. Um, was really just disheartening and really, you know, made me lose faith in the whole system, honestly. Yeah. I've had similar experiences in the past. I've had some nasty e- emails actually coming from one of my my state senators here that, um, boy, these guys are just totally unsympathetic toward things. And, and that kind of leads to a, a bigger question here, though, because, you know, you're dealing with South Carolina, which is um, pretty much a red state. I mean, in presidential elections, it consistently voted Republican since 1980. Uh, your two senators have consistently been Republican uh, for the last you know, nearly 20 years. And the first representative district of South Carolina, the place where you're running, only has had one Democrat in, I think it's been over 40 years now. So, and the reason why I bring this, this up regarding the Republican Party is because the Republicans really own the narrative on the Second Amendment these days. The Democrats have never really caught up with them on that. And, and, and the sad thing is, I mean, there's a lot of Republicans that can get behind the concept of common sense gun regulation. But the reality is that it's, uh, it's been this way a long time where it's very much an uphill battle to win popularity at, this, at the same time that you're talking about, you know, publicly talking about gun violence prevention, uh, or at least I would think so. So with that in mind, I mean, what is your strategy to address gun violence prevention in, in such a deeply red state? Yeah, I think you bring up a lot of important points there. And I think one thing I thought of while you were asking that question is my state's motto is while I breathe, I hope. And I firmly believe, you know, as a mom of three very young children, I have no choice but to be hopeful about the future of the state, about the future of this country. And so I choose to be hopeful. And that includes being hopeful that we can make progress on issues that folks think are you know, unwinnable issues down here. Because the truth of the matter is, polling shows us that the majority of Americans, including Democrats, Republicans, gun owners, non-gun owners, agree on so much around this issue. But the debate gets clouded by these, you know, by the the NRA, to be yeah. frank. Yeah. Um, so we, we aren't having the conversations we should be having because the NRA is setting the agenda, but that is changing. The tide is turning. There has been so much progress over the past, you know, 10 to 15 years, mostly at the state house level, some in the boardroom, um, but we are making progress. And I know that we will see that progress in South Carolina. So people ask me this all the time, you know, how am I going to win if I'm talking about gun violence in the South? Mm -hmm. And it's because I talk about it as a mom who wants my kids to be safe in school. I want my kids to be able to go to school without having to worry about why they're doing lockdown drills. I mean, the day that my middle child told me about his first lockdown drill was heartbreaking. You know, it was right after coming out of the COVID lockdown. He was finally in a real classroom. He was a kindergartner. And it was that first week of in-person learning. And it was, a, you know, the third morning I was dropping him off. And he just sort of in passing said, mom, we did a lockdown drill yesterday and we have to hide and be quiet. So the bad man doesn't get us. Wow. Yeah. That's and pretty shocking. That is, 
Yes. And that is the reality for every child in America. So this is an issue that no matter where you live, no matter how much your community is affected by gun violence, every single child is exposed to lockdown drills in the place where they should feel so safe and secure and be able to learn. And how can we expect them to learn if they're essentially rehearsing their own deaths via these lockdown drills? Yeah. So, you know, yeah. I, you know, again, this is an issue that affects everybody and there's so much on which we all agree. We just have to take control of the narrative and talk about this in ways that, you know, are, you know, that people can digest. So we need universal background checks. You know, mm -hmm. if we don't have background checks on all gun sales, if we continue to allow private sales to go on without background checks, we're going to continue to have guns in dangerous people's hands. And we yeah. can't have that. Um, there is a direct correlation between the state's gun law strength and the rate of gun violence in that state. Yeah. So each state is designed to have the level of gun violence that it has by nature of its laws. There's so much work that we can do, so much low-hanging fruit here, and I am incredibly hopeful that we will continue to make progress in this country, including in states like South Carolina. Well, uh, now I live in Missouri, which is, uh, <clears throat> is, is it's going to be a real uphill battle here in Missouri because we have what's called the Second Amendment Protection Act, which was passed by mm -hmm. the Missouri legislature here. And that says essentially that, that essentially it says that police departments are prevented from working with the federal government in any area that pertains to firearms. And I don't know if you remember seeing this last November, I believe it was on 60 Minutes. They did a news story on this because here's the thing. Police departments, even the police departments across the state really hate this new law because it basically prevents them from investigating and solving gun related crimes. Uh, you got to think about the, you know, the sheriffs out in, the, in some of these uh, sparsely populated counties. They have departments that are already really uh, understaffed and, and, and probably don't have all the resources they need. So they have to turn to the federal government for crime analysis. And now they're being prevented from doing that. And this is, uh, this is it's, I think Missouri, in a sense, is taking a step back. I hope South Carolina is not that way. Um, well, let me ask you a question. Do you see that similar sort of animosity toward the federal government in, uh, in taking place in South Carolina there? So fortunately, we have not had movement on a bill like you're describing in Missouri down here in South Carolina. This past legislative session, they did pass open carry. Um, but, you know, when you talk about law enforcement and you're talking about gun violence, again, we have to be better about our messaging because... Law enforcement supports common sense gun legislation. Mm -hmm. Law enforcement supports background checks on all gun sales because they're the ones showing up to these dangerous scenes when dangerous people have guns that they shouldn't have. And so, you know, I remember, I think back to when they were discussing the open carry bill in the South Carolina House, and I was there virtually to testify against the bill. Mm -hmm from my perspective as a pediatrician in the community. And I talked about some of the children I've cared for who have been shot. Mm -hmm. And right next to us, right alongside us doctors was law enforcement. Law enforcement was openly testifying against open carry. Yeah. And then what did they do? They passed open carry. Yeah. Law enforcement doesn't want these dangerous gun laws. Doctors don't want these dangerous gun laws. Moms and dads across the state don't want these. So. The problem is our lawmakers are not representing the major what the majority will is in yeah. states, even states like Missouri and South Carolina. 
Um, they are writing the gun laws that the NRA is telling them to write because they're afraid of losing out on the NRA's money. Yeah. And again, that tide is changing. The NRA is as weak as it ever has been. And I think we're going to continue to learn about a lot about where the NRA's money is coming from. And they're going to, they're not going to have their stranglehold on our politicians forever, but we need more politicians who are running and not taking money from organizations like the NRA and who are going to write gun laws that are consistent with the will of the majority of the people that they are elected to represent. Well, here's the problem with the NRA though, because they, they have success, they've been very, very successful at associating the concepts of freedom and patriotism with guns. And if I may quote uh, William LaPierre, who's the executive vice president and CEO of uh, <clears throat> the National Rifle Association since 1991, he said, quote, our Second Amendment is freedom's most valuable, most cherished, most irreplaceable idea. History proves it. When you ignore the right of good people to own firearms to protect their freedom, you become the enablers of future tyrants whose regimes will destroy millions and millions of defenseless lives. And you know when you have it when you have the NRA framing things like this and actually latching into the concepts of freedom and patriotism and being American and everything. I mean, it's no it's no wonder that you get a lot of emotion behind this. And so, what Absolutely. can we say about that? Absolutely, and they have been incredibly effective at tying you know the right to own firearms to concepts like freedom. I would turn that around and say, well, my child should be free to go to his little league baseball game mm -hmm. without having to duck and cover from gunfire. Mm -hmm. My child should be free to learn in his kindergarten classroom without having to have his learning interrupted by a lockdown drill. Yeah. You know, or my worse. child, yeah. right. My child should be free to go to the movie theater without having to look for the exits in case there's a shooter. So the re our freedom is being compromised by the NRA writing our gun laws for decades and decades. We don't have the freedoms we should because of the NRA. No. And I think the thing that gets lost so often is they assume that people like me who are fighting for common sense gun laws don't support the Second Amendment. And that couldn't be further from the truth. I support the Second Amendment. If you are a law-abiding citizen and you choose to be a gun owner, I don't want anything to do with you or your guns. Frankly, as a pediatrician and a mom, I honestly have never been particularly interested in a conversation about guns. But mm -hmm. what I am interested in is a conversation about how to get fewer children with bullet holes. Yeah. And I'm interested in a conversation about how to raise my children in a safe environment. Yeah. That's an interesting thing. I, there's this concept of freedom to versus freedom from, right? And that's where it applies to the Second Amendment. The freedom to bear arms, but freedom from the people that are bearing arms that are have <laughs> nefarious intent in mind. So it's a freedom, right. freedom to versus freedom from. Yeah. And I, I it, the the first four words of the Second Amendment are are what um, a, a well-regulated militia. Mm -hmm. So, so the word regulated sort of, um, a lot of states try to ignore that part of the constitution, I believe, but, um, right. yeah, yeah. So, uh, let's go back to <clears throat> federal versus state. Uh, where do you see the federal government playing a role in gun violence prevention? I mean, you talked about background checks before, is mm -hmm. that something that you would support at the federal level? Yes, absolutely. I think there are 
a handful of things that should be done and could be done with urgency at the federal level. And the first thing would be expanded or universal background checks or background checks on all gun sales. And again, that's a position that over 90% of gun owners, Republicans, Democrats all agree on. So we, we, sh- we need the political will to pass a universal background check bill. Mm-hmm. And that would be my first priority. The second thing I'm particularly interested in at the federal level is a federal secure storage law. Mm-hmm. A lot of the children I care for in my role as a pediatrician at the Children's Hospital are toddlers who have gained access to unsecured firearms in their own homes, pick them up thinking they're a toy, and yeah. in un- unintentionally pulling the trigger, injuring themselves or someone else. Yeah. So a federal secure storage law would make the adult gun owner liable for these tragedies. Mm-hmm. And we need that to protect the children in all of our communities. Yeah. And then the third thing I would advocate for at the federal level is increased funding for two things. One, for gun violence prevention research, because although we have made progress over the past few years, it is still woefully underfunded when you compare it to its morbidity and mortality rate. So it is incredibly underfunded. And because it's underfunded, there's so much we don't understand about the roots of violence, about effective solutions to gun violence prevention. So I would advocate for increased federal funding for research and also increased federal funding for hospital and community-based violence intervention programs. So I have been had the great fortune of being, you know, loosely associated with these fantastic group of people at my institution who have recently started a hospital-based violence intervention program. And these are cost-effective evidence-based programs that are found throughout the country that help address the root causes of violence. So when a patient shows up at the hospital who has been shot, there's a team of people that work to get to know the patient, to understand what it was in their life that led them to be in a position to get shot, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, they need more education, whether they need a job, whether they are um, currently unhoused. And, you know, the case managers, client advocates in these programs develop comprehensive wraparound solutions. And then they follow these patients out of the hospital, try to address those social determinants of violence so that these patients aren't subjected to a subsequent violent injury. And these programs have been studied and shown to be effective, but we haven't had the broad support from the government at the federal level to fully fund these programs throughout the country. And so states like South Carolina suffer because of that, because we don't have a a forward-thinking legislature that is, you know, thinking about funding these programs. So we rely on the federal government to make these these decisions. And so those are the three the three main things I would advocate for at the federal level. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, you, you talked a lot of, about a lot of things about you know children getting a hold of guns accidentally mm-hmm. because they're not being locked up correctly. Mm-hmm. And it, it brings me to a question right here. Um, what are the key factors that you see in motivating gun violence? And, and some examples would be like the glorification of guns on TV, uh, you know, and children playing with toy guns, uh, video games. I don't know if that has an effect or not, but um, that's that's up for debate as well, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, the des- the desensitization of gun violence, et cetera. Are these root causes? And if they are, what can you as a member of Congress then do about it? So I would say, you know, there are so many countries that have violent video games, violent television shows and violent movies and kids who are playing with water guns and Nerf guns. But we are the only country that is suffering to such a degree from this public health crisis of gun violence. So it's more than just exposure to violent content 
or, you know, exposure to toy weapons as a young child. The real, you know, it, first of all, it's the number of guns that exist in our society right now. There are more guns than people in the United States and the proliferation of guns is the primary driver of gun violence in the United States. The real roots of violence are so much deeper, you know, than video games and TV shows. And it's, it's, it's poverty. It's, you know, lack of access to quality education. It's lack of access to economic opportunities. And so if you find yourself in a community where you haven't had, you know, a quality education because your school is underfunded and, you know, your mom has, is a single mom and doesn't have a living wage and you don't see any economic opportunity in your community, then it is so much easier for a person in that situation to turn to violence, mm -hmm. to get involved in you know, groups of people who are involved in violence and to contribute to the problem. So we have to address these you know, really deep roots and causes of gun violence in our society. But the most sort of obvious cause is the proliferation of the guns themselves in our society. Mm -hmm. Okay. And your website says that you are a gun violence prevention researcher uh, or researcher. I probably put the emphasis on the wrong syllable there. <laughs> um, but what does that mean? I mean, how do you conduct this research? And, and, and could you just tell us about some of the key findings that you've uncovered so far? Yeah. So this is just part of my, been part of my evolution on this issue. Like I told you earlier, I came to this issue as a concerned parent. Then I learned deeper about this issue as a pediatrician and I had already been trained in clinical research. So I got a master's degree in clinical research during my fellowship and was conducting asthma research. And I became so passionate about gun violence prevention and seeing what a huge problem it was in my community that I decided to shift the focus of my research career from asthma to gun violence. Mm. So the majority of the research that I have done on gun violence has used existing data sets. So we have a lot of really rich existing data that can be studied to understand clinical problems like asthma and like gun violence. So we can look at these data sets that are de-identified and find all the children throughout the country who have been shot and hospitalized as a result of their firearm injury. And then we can take a look at their healthcare utilization after they've been shot. And we can compare that to a group of children who haven't been shot. And we can start to understand the real burden of these non-fatal firearm injuries in children and understand what kind of new mental health diagnoses they have after they've been shot compared to a control group or how often they're having to visit the doctor or what kind of pain medications they have to take. Because mm -hmm. again, as I said earlier, this has been underfunded for so long. There's just some really basic questions about gun violence that we as researchers don't understand. And the one that I've been particularly focused is, on is those effects of non-fatal firearm injuries in children. Because when we look at the data, we so often focus on the number of kids who have died, mm -hmm. but the story is so much bigger than that. It's all of these children. So for every child who's shot and is killed, there are three, four, five, six children who are shot and not killed. Mm -hmm. And as you can imagine, just being the nature of being shot carries with it long-term consequences, yeah. health-related and otherwise. So we're just scratching the surface to start to understand what those long-term effects on children might be. Mm -hmm. So the focus of my research has been on that. Our most recent publication used a different data set. We actually use publicly available CDC data, which tells us the causes of deaths among people of different ages. So what we did was we looked at the most recent available data, which takes us through 2019, to understand the relationship between the different causes of death among children. 
Historically, for decades, motor vehicle collisions have been the number one cause of death for children in this country. But over the past two decades, we have seen a precipitous decline in the rate of death by motor vehicle collision because we've taken a very comprehensive public health approach to preventing those injuries and deaths. But over that same time period, we have not done that with firearm injury. And mm -hmm. so in 2019, we can see in the CDC data that firearm injuries became the leading cause of death for children in this country, children in South Carolina, and children in every state in this country. So now, as of 2019, gun violence is the number one cause of death for children in the United States. Wow. So we just published that in um, pediatrics. And in that study, we also looked at the differences in death rate by race. And we found some really worrisome trends. So I think it, you need to say that even though it just became the leading cause of death for all children in this country in 2019, gun violence has been the leading cause of death for black children in this country for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And what we saw in this analysis was up through 2019, the discrepancy between black children and white children is starting to widen. Wow. So both rates are increasing, but it's increasing at a faster rate for black youth compared to white youth. Wow. So gun violence is a very significant driver of racial health inequities in this country. And if we don't change course, I worry that that's just going to continue to get wider and wider and wider. What amazes me is that you're doing all this research. And um, it, I had heard this before, and I, you maybe can confirm whether this is true about the federal government in some ways being prevented from compiling statistics on gun violence uh, uh, injuries out there. Is, is, that, is that not true? Because it seems to me like... The government should have been doing this for decades already. Why is it relying on you know individual people like yourself taking the initiative to go out and do this? Yeah, so what you're talking about is known as the Dickey Amendment, which was a way to try to tamp down research or any federal dollars being used to, essentially the spirit of it was, we shouldn't use federal money on any gun control, quote unquote, gun control efforts. Mm. But the Dickey Amendment got overinterpreted and basically shut down any federal funding for gun violence research for decades. And that's why we're so far behind. Wow. We have made a lot of progress in a better, more accurate understanding of what the Dickey Amendment was intended to do. And so now we do have more federal funding for gun violence prevention research from you know different institutions, including the CDC. So we are making progress, but we still have a long way to go. The other issue that has been sort of misinterpreted and caused some delays in healthcare providers acting on this issue is that several states attempted to pass laws to prevent physicians from being able to talk about guns during doctor visits. And so mm. particularly in Florida, you know, this was called a gag law where wow. they passed a law that said doctors can't talk to patients about guns. It's none of doctor's business. And this immediately got challenged by the courts. It never really went into effect, but it did have this ripple effect of sort of scaring physicians away from talking about guns during healthcare visits. Now, as the number one cause of death for children, it is certainly relevant for me to talk to my patients about preventing access to unsecured firearms. And so doctors need to feel empowered that it is fully legal and in fact, really under the umbrella of what we need to be doing to protect our patients, to talk to them about access to firearms in the home that can drive those unintentional shootings and that can drive uh, guns showing up on school grounds and can drive youth suicide rates as well. 
Boy, boy, that's uh, that's that Florida law that you're talking about there. I wonder mm. if the NRA was behind that law, huh? Yes, I'm very confident that they were. Yeah, yeah. So um, let me ask you another question here. Let's say you win the primary and, and you go to the general election and you win the general election. How are you going to approach the topic of gun violence prevention with other lawmakers who you know mm-hmm. are coming together from all over the country? And are there any bills that you have in mind yet that you would like to sponsor in this area? Sure. So the good news is I don't have a primary election opponent. So I am the Democratic nominee. So I will be in the general election against whoever the Republican primary winner is. But when I win the general election in November and I get to Washington, you know, I think the important thing is to know that, again, I support the Second Amendment and I will be willing to work with anyone who is willing to work with me. And I hold a lot of hope that I will be effective on this issue because of my expertise as a pediatrician, as a researcher, and also because of the stories that I carry with me of the children I've cared for who have been shot. Because I think it's so easy to get jaded and to see the data just as data. But I I see the data, but I also see those young patients I have cared for. those stories are incredibly powerful, and I hope that those stories will help to drive change. There is a pretty big push at the federal level right now for one of those federal secure storage laws, mm-hmm. and that is known as Ethan's Law, and that's been advocated for by Kristen and Mike Song, who lost their son to an unintentional shooting at his friend's house. And they are incredible advocates. They worked diligently to pass a secure storage law in Connecticut. And they are now working at the federal level. And so there is momentum there. And I think, again, that's something that if you really explain what that is to your average voter, to another parent, that's something we can all agree on. You know, responsible gun owners understand the importance of secure firearm storage. And that's, again, something we all agree on. And I think that's something that if isolated from the larger gun debate, that's something that we should be able to get some movement on at the federal level. Well, there's certainly a lot of popular support behind it. I guess the question mm-hmm. really is, you know, trying to get uh, pry loose the uh, the influence of the NRA on on the re- the various different um, lawmakers out there mm-hmm. that, uh, despite what their constituents are saying, are continuing to obstruct any sort of uh, progress behind gun violence prevention. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'll just quickly say, I think Mm -hmm. an answer to that is we need more people like me who step up to the plate and are willing to run for office and run for office to solve these actual problems. And, you know, I'm obviously not taking any NRA money and I'm not taking any corporate PAC money. I'm running to represent the people of my district. And if more folks in office actually represented the will of the people in their district, we could solve some real problems. So, you know, I encourage anyone who's ever thought about whether or not they should run for office to seriously consider doing it because we just need more regular people who have some level of expertise and some will to solve problems running for office. Okay, well. I'm thinking about myself as you say that. Ah, do I have the nerve to do this? Um, we'll see. Um, so I didn't realize that you, everybody has dropped out of the Democratic primary then. It's just uh, you're, you're the, the, the primary was supposed to run on June 14th, but uh, everybody's gone now. Okay. Wow. That's right. Yeah, we had, you know, we had a lot of momentum out of the gate um, from a fundraising standpoint. Mm -hmm. And we feel really fortunate that the party has united behind our campaign and is going to give us the best shot to get this seat back in November. Okay. 
Yeah, I was on Ballotpedia and I was looking at all the uh, all the primary uh, mm-hmm. candidates for both the Democrats, Republicans, and there's several other uh, parties in there. We talked earlier before the podcast about the Alliance mm-hmm. Party. One thing I noticed, though, was that uh, all the people that were on the list, I guess not all of them are on the list anymore, but they're all women. So this is um, interesting. Yes. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yes. The incumbent is a woman and her two primary challengers are women. And of course, I am a woman. So it isn't. Yes. Regardless of what happens, you know, this seat should be held by a woman come 2022. Wonderful. So mm-hmm. do you have anything else to add before we uh, start to wrap this up? Um, no, I just I think that more moms, more dads, more people like me who see their kids stressed out about lockdown drills or who see the headlines of shootings at malls or drive-by shootings, you know, that they really think about using that issue to help them identify the candidates they want to support because Mm -hmm. this is a solvable problem. We just need politicians with the will to solve it. And we can affect that by voting on this issue. And we can make some real progress and keep all of our children safer and make our communities safer. Well put. And there's a lot of other things in your campaign website besides gun violence prevention. And uh, if we had Mm -hmm. the time, I'd love to discuss all of them with you, but that would probably take the rest of the day. (laughs) Uh, There's things like infrastructure and flooding, which I know is a Mm -hmm. huge concern in the low country of South Carolina. Uh, Healthcare, voting rights, fiscal responsibility, fighting against corruption and several others. So um, we can't talk about all of them here, but uh, where can people go to learn more about your campaign and the issues you care about and how to get involved? Yes, thank you. So they can go to my campaign website, which is dranniandrews.com, just D-R-Annie, andrews.com to learn more about where I stand on a whole myriad of issues. They can also find me on Twitter. I'm at AnnieAndrewsMD. And they can find my launch video at either of those places. And I encourage folks to go on and take a look and see what they think. Okay. Well, we've been talking with Dr. Annie Andrews, a pediatrician, gun violence prevention researcher, mother, and candidate for South Carolina's first congressional district. Dr. Andrews, thank you for joining us at Democracy on the Move and good luck on your campaign. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will help keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd like to sponsor future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or contact us on our webpage at democracyonthemove.org slash contact. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by El Ray Music, used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in again next week.